I don't know if you had a chance to uh, download or read this little thing on the Day of the Lord. We're, we'll get to that at the very end, and if not today, definitely next week. So um, there's a lot I want to say about that, and the degree to which I go into a lot of detail is up to you, how much you want to talk about it. But chapter 3 is a, a marvelous chapter in Second Peter. It really is. And so what I did on the board here was, uh, probably I did too much, but I, I think it's valuable for you and me because um, what, is, what is occurring today is uh, similar to what was in, in Peter's time. Uh, the attack, uh, that's a strong word, but the attack of the idea that Christ is coming back, that there is going to be an end to history. Uh, that's the first four verses. And Peter summarizes that attack, and then he gives, as I uh, said a moment ago, a very marvelous defense of the fact that God does intervene in history and is going to accomplish uh, his purposes and goals in history. So when we, I, I called this hope attacked and hope authenticated because uh, I think that's an appropriate word although it's not directly used here in the text. What do we mean by hope? What does the word hope mean? Well, we would hope for eternal life if you're a Christian. Okay. Is hope a uh, past-oriented word, a present-oriented word, or a future-oriented word? All three. Future. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like you're speaking in tongues. Everybody's <laughs> primarily I mean our hope isn't in something that occurred although that gives us the basis foundation it's future oriented I mean I if I have hope uh, it's something that I'm looking forward to uh, it's, it's, it's an event or it's a series of promises or something like this I uh, studied under a man who defined hope as expectancy with desire you have to think about that. You have to think about those three words, expectancy. Uh, what would be another word for expectancy? Uh, well, uh, kind of a certainty. You, you uh, are, are very focused on what is going to happen, and you expect it. You're excited about it. Uh, it's not something that's you know, a wish. It's an expectancy. I expect this to happen with desire. I want it to happen kind of a promise, isn't it? It is. I mean, hope as a term is focused on a promise. So it's not, you know, I think I've, I've used this ridiculous illustration, but I could say, I wish I had a million dollars. Or I could say, I hope I get a million dollars. Well, there's a big difference there. But if I say, I hope I get a million dollars, well, I'm retired on a fixed income. It certainly isn't going to happen that way. I don't have any rich relatives. Almost everybody in my family has gone to be with the Lord in just my mind. There's no way I'm going to inherit anything. Um, I don't gamble. So to say I hope to get a million dollars, that's more like a baseless wish. But if I say I hope Jesus returns, that's a very different statement than I hope to get a million dollars. And so what Peter is addressing here is the early church had the expectancy with desire, the hope, Titus 2.13 calls it the blessed hope, that Christ would return. And I have said this, I know, multiple times in this class. The future promises of God should affect present behavior. Because of what God has promised us, and there are literally dozens of promises but most significantly for all of us is the promise, I'm coming back for you. John 14, the first couple of verses. I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back for you. And where I am, you will be. A magnificent promise. A, a wonderful promise. And do you believe it? If you do, then that's the vital center of your hope for the future. You don't fear the future. Fear is the opposite of hope. You, you have an expectancy with the desire that God's going to fulfill his promises. 
That's what Peter zeroes in on the first four verses. This is now, uh, we did most of this last week, but I'm going to read it again if you don't mind. The second letter that I'm writing to you, you know, the first letter is what we studied a couple of months ago, First Peter, beloved, in both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, I, I just love that little, the way ESV's translated that, stirring up your sincere mind by we ray of reminder. A good teaching tool is to keep reminding people of the truth. And that's what he's doing. And the content of that is the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Two sources of the truth. Don't, don't miss that. Two sources of the truth about the future. The prophets and the apostles. The apostles would be, the, not all, but almost all of the writers of the New Testament. They're the apostles. And both the prophecies of the Old Testament and the teachings of the New Testament through the apostles tell us that Jesus Christ is coming back. And it's, it's, it's a summary, and that's one of the things I like how Peter does this, it's a summary of the, if I use the word continuity, do you know what I mean? The continuity of the two Testaments. They're not, they're not disconnected, they're very connected in a continuous revelation of truth. And that's what Peter is saying. And then in verse 3, because you know this first of all, it's a causal participle, so because you know this first of all, that scoffers, that's how the ESV translates that. Do all of you have that scoffers? Is that the okay? Usually, or yes, yeah, scoffing is like mocking. You will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, "What's the content of their scoffing? Of their mocking? Where is the promise of his coming?" I mean, just think when Peter writes this in the early '60s, it had only been less than thirty years since Jesus went back to the Father. For you and me today, it's like 2,000 years. And I can, and I mean this sincerely, I can take you to seminaries of mainline denominational schools that will mock the idea that Jesus is coming back. They'll mock it. They'll make fun of it. And they're preparing the leaders for the churches in some. They mock it. They say, oh, that's silly. Nobody believes in that anymore. I had a guy tell me that. Nobody believes in that anymore. And I looked him in the face, well, I do, because I believe what the Bible says. I don't know what you're believing. And I was very cynical that day. <clears throat> For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's their statement. Things don't change. This idea that Jesus is going to come back, now come on. I mean, it's just history is just kind of a continuous, endless pattern of things. Another way of saying it is, don't you dare believe that God intervenes in history. If there is a God, he's above history. He's above, above space and time. He's a, he's a God who's not really directly involved I'll even maybe sort of affirm his sovereignty, but this idea that he's involved, that he cares. Because see, if you believe that, then you'll reject the idea that Christ came the first time, and you most certainly will therefore reject the idea that Christ is coming back. And men, in, that is the typical belief of most people. Christian Smith is a Christian sociologist. A couple of years ago wrote a book as he tried to capture the theology of the millennial generation. And he coined a term, a phrase actually. The theology of the millennials is moralistic therapeutic deism. <laughs> moralistic therapeutic deism. Start with a third word, deism. There's a God, but he doesn't directly intervene. My idea of God, he's just a master therapist. He's to help me feel good about myself. And moralistic, there is there are morals but it really is connected to me feeling good about myself. So it's a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God. And not atheist. It's just a God who really, really doesn't care that much. About, 
Because that's what deistic God is. And he's my therapist. I go to him when I feel bad about myself. That's extremely cynical. But what Smith did, he's really written, he's written three books on these areas of trying to get a sense, and I think it's valuable for youth ministers to really be in touch with those books. This is this is where the kids are you're ministering to. What's his name? Christian Smith. He's a sociologist. He's taught at a couple schools. I think he's at Notre Dame now. But but anyway, uh, he's done some really valuable work, really helped a lot. Anyway, I'm getting beyond the main point here, but that that's the kind of view that so many people have, and many people sitting in the pews next to you who have not studied the Bible very thoroughly, that's kind of their view of God. I go to him when I'm in trouble. I go to him when I don't feel good about myself. I, I go to him when I'm in a, in a crisis. But this idea of a personal God who cares for me and loves me and I, I want to love him because of all he's done, that's their old ideas. Jim, those, those are a bunch of words coming out of the mouth of a human being. Right. Well, what's the basis of that in maybe just... Th- sort of that that mean, you mean this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic view of God? Is that what you mean? Where's that coming from? Well, th- yeah, these statements. Scholars. Uh, what what motivates? I mean, I have my own thoughts, but what what since you've thought about it quite a bit, what are your thoughts about what motivates th- these people that will present this verbiage with some? Uh, with an attitude, perhaps, of judgment, um, that they are right, and anyone who doesn't believe that way is living in a fantasy land. Well, I think, I mean, you've asked a very large question. I mean, you really have. Um, and, and so there are about three different levels on which I can answer the question. But I, I think for the most part, what we're looking at and what we're dealing with now is about two generations of Americans who are not taught very well in terms of the Bible, who have adopted, whether they even thought through it or not, adopted a very... Um, self-centered view of the universe, that everything really revolves around me, including God, they're not atheists. And it's fed by, and again, these are really broad statements, but it's fed by the technology of this, these last two generations, which have more and more focused on it is all about you, and I have provided the technology to accentuate that it's all about you. You create your own reality with this. You really do. You, cre- you, can, you create your own reality. And it's your reality. And you choose your friends on Facebook and you, you, know, you, you defriend people or you friend people and you welcome them in or you reject them. And, it's just, and we create our own little silos of, of people and our own little technological universe, so to speak, and I may let God into that when I'm in trouble or I don't feel good about myself. That's that moralistic, therapeutic view of God. But the idea of God directly involved helping to solve my basic fundamental problem of the human condition, which is sin and rebelling against him, is a foreign idea. And so it's, I mean, it's a complicated question, Fred. It really is. It's, it's not an easy question to answer because it, there's so many different uh, facets to it. But I think that's really, I think that's really where we're at as a civilization. It's a civilization that is uh, uh, no longer loyal to institutions, no longer loyal to authority, no longer lo- loyal to discipline for greater good of people. It really is about personal autonomy, and everything feeds that. So it's hard to break out of that. It is really hard. That's one of the challenges of the local church right yeah, now, yeah. is to reach reach gener- uh, millennial generation, now they're calling Generation Z, 
because they are not committed to institutions. They're not committed, they're not loyal. Loyalty is not a, a chief ethic of, of those generations, other than loyalty to your own little silo of people. And I mean, it, it makes it very complicated because then the soul, well, not complete, but almost the sole authority in your life that you trust is yourself. You don't trust other authorities. You don't, you don't want to listen to other levels of authority. And so when you begin to lay out the challenges of God's word, which is the authority of God revealed, that's a very unpopular thing to do, particularly when you start feeling uncomfortable about it. Which is what, I mean, every time I open the word of God, I close the word of God feeling uncomfortable. I've been challenged about something. I've been reminded of some things that God wants me to deal with because he loves me. He's my heavenly father. But that kind of, that kind of an approach to how we look at God and how we look at his word is, is no longer a comfortable approach for anybody under 45 or 50 years old. That's right. We, I mean, we are, we are facing a very significant challenge in our culture. The, the word inculcated kind of comes to my mind that we are self-inculcated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that womb or that, that band of communication and definition of how we will relate to everybody is defined in part by our technology and uh, some of the things you mentioned. Well, our, you know, our technology, our prosperity and affluence, uh, and, you know, broadly speaking, not everybody, but even those who are, uh, and by the way the government defines it, poor in, the, in that category below the poverty line, compared to almost anyone else in the world, they're still, they're still enjoying the fruits of American affluence, you know, whether it's through government programs or through any of the other I mean, I'm not dumping on any of that. I'm just saying that, that it's, it's therefore hard. I mean, people that are very, very poor still have cell phones. Now, I, I don't mean, I'm not being glib there. I'm just saying, I mean, that's just the reality. Yeah. You know, my daughter uh, is a reading coordinator in District 66, and she's dealing with the hardcore kids that have reading problems. And I mean, it's she and her husband were over last night at our house, and we had dinner with them, and I just, she was just talking again about this some of the she most of her kids are title one kids I don't know if you know what that means but I mean just kids in need I mean just and terrible family situations and terrible and it's just the bottom line of it all is nobody cares for them nobody cares about them I mean your parents don't really care about them they really don't and, and I mean, and then you come to a school, well, the principal doesn't care about the assistant principal because the assistant principal is chief disciplinarian. So here's Joanna trying to, with another Christian gal, they're, they're, they're trying to work through programs to really care for these kids. And these kids don't know what to do with it because nobody's ever cared for them. I'm serious. And, and Joanna's saying it takes too much for them to really trust me because I genuinely care and they don't trust me. They don't trust that I really do care for them. And so uh, Peggy works with Joanna, just volunteering reads, and she was up there the other Monday, I think it was, and this one little boy said to her, do you work here now? Do no. What? Do you work here now? Because, oh. <laughs> you know, she sees, uh, he sees her. And she says, no, I just, I just help Mrs. Thompson. That's my daughter's married name. And, and he, he said, okay, well, th- then you're not getting paid for any of this. No, no, no. Well, then why are you doing this? You know, it's just like this little eight-year-old. I'm maybe not necessarily driving home the point, but it's the this whole idea that people genuinely want to help you is a foreign idea to so many of these little kids. So, I mean, it's just we're in this no trust of authority, no trust of, of, of discipline and, and the means of it and the value of it. And some of these kids just go into tirades, and this one little boy, uh, well, I don't get, that's not important. So we got way off the subject, but now Woody's going to bring us back. Yes, right. Um, that's kind of alarming and discouraging to, you know, to those of us that have uh, children in their early 50s and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe some of the people that we're sitting in church with, 
uh, don't grip the full extent of this. Uh, it kind of makes me feel like it'd be difficult to reach our children and our grandchildren. Well, I think you're right, Woody, it is. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can to reach them. And that's why uh, your your local church and, and whatever you're involved with there is is the most important uh, the most important part of a strategy to reach them, among other things. But it's not hopeless. But it's just, this is in many ways, and this is not original thought with me. Where we are in the 21st century is very similar to where the church was in the first century. It was a minority. They were going against everything the culture stood for, and they were their their perspective. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like Peter and Paul, the the, the the heroes of the New Testament. Their strategy was one person at a time, one person at a time, one person at a time, one city at a time, one section at a time. We proclaim the truth. We give an opportunity to respond to the truth. We plant a church. We disciple the leaders. Then we move on. And it wasn't uh, necessarily, I'm going to try to reach Iconium, which was a city in the first missionary journey, and I'm going to win everybody in Iconium to Christ. Then I'll move on to Lystra. That wasn't his strategy. Win, Win a key group of people to Christ, disciple them as leaders, and move on. And so our, our strategy is through our churches. I mean, that's why I've committed my life to what I do, to teach men particularly, but in certain situations, men and women, but to teach men particularly the Word of God and get, get them to take seriously what God's saying so that their lives will start to be transformed and they will then there'll be that multiplier effect with children and grandchildren, and that's the only way to do it. Discipleship, you can't do discipleship in large groups. You can't do discipleship in football stadiums. You can maybe do mass evangelism in football stadiums, but you can't do discipleship in football stadiums. And so people that want this, I'll be here. But if you guys stop coming, I'll stop it and I'll do something else on Wednesdays. I hope you understand the spirit in which I'm saying that. Because that's that's what I think is the most important strategy and the part of is part of my life to see transformational change occur. There's no other way to do it. I'm talking more, and I I like to talk uh, here. But the, uh, a fellow was uh, in um, that I work with said that he had an idea of this group. And there was one this, person. This group here? No, oh. <clears throat> this, oh. this was another. It's a, oh, another. It's a Christian group, uh, which I won't mention, in the city. And uh, he had occasion to, to meet with one of those people. And he said... You know, uh, he invited me to come to this place, and he said, I came without judgment from them. It's a good statement. <laughs> and he was looking to have someone in that group say, you're a sinner. Mm. And he said, none of that. Mm. came and he said it they just seem like really a great group of men and so he's going to have lunch with them mm. and get to know them a little bit mm. better mm. but i i think that that might be some of the world because when you break into someone's cocoon you're a foreign substance to them like you say and they have a lot of fears that you know preconceived some motivated by Satan's ideas to them I think but you know we are who we are and we are not to judge anybody but to befriend people 
And he liked that. Mm. So well, it's the gen genuineness and authentic yeah. authenticity there that matters. All right. Uh, are, are, are the scoffers that, that Peter's referring to would, would that be consistent, like in, in First John eight four, when when um, he talks about the Antichrist small a that precede the Antichrist capital A? Is that that level? I th that is at the certainly the the, the peak level. Uh, often leading this kind of scoffing and mocking, but permeates down pretty pretty quickly. But yes, I think so. Now look at what he does with this, though. Now he, Peter, what he does with this, the scoffing and mocking of the idea that Christ is coming back. What he does, and this is what I tried, I, I worked on this last Friday, I think it was a Thursday. Okay, how does Peter respond to this? If you notice in verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact. What fact? That God does intervene in human history. He's not a deistic God. He's not, a, I don't use the Christian Smith's phrase, he's not a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God who's distant. He, he's, you know, he, he maybe gets everything and leaves. He's not involved. Peter says, that's not true. And so what he does, he's, the fact is, they ignore what fact? That God does intervene. And so what he does is he organizes his, I put it this way to kind of keep the outline, the authentication of our hope is centered on how we look at God. Not how we feel, not what others are saying, but how we look at God. So is God a deistic God? No. He's a God deeply in love, deeply concerned, and deeply committed in his sovereignty to accomplishing his purposes. He does intervene. And so he cites, and I'm summarizing, and we'll read it. First, he uses creation. He uses the flood. And then he says, this is so important, you cannot... You cannot look at time the way God looks at time. And thirdly, this delay that they're mocking <coughs> has a gracious purpose to it. And then finally, and I'm not sure we'll get to this today, Peter talks about, and I really should, it's beyond verse 10, but he talks about this concept of the day of the Lord. And the premise of the day of the Lord is that God does intervene in history for two purposes, judgment and blessing. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Are these Christians that are saying this because, I mean, Jesus, God intervened by giving us Jesus to show us? The, uh, the, the, the people that Peter's are, uh, I mean, talking about here, so that... well, the, the people that Peter's talking about here would be the false teachers and heretics that he addressed in earlier chapters. That's one of their markings, I suppose you say, mocking and scoffing at the idea that promises God made about his Jesus coming back and all. No, I don't believe that's so silly. Not, not Christian. Well, no, 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 they wouldn't be. So look at how he does this now. <clears throat> they overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that... Um, by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. Now, he doesn't go into any detail, but he focuses on two things. Creation by the word of God. You see that? God speaks things into creation, speaks things into being. Let there be light. Let there be you know, the, the stars of the sky. All that stuff that God directly creates with his, with his word. And then that same God judged the world through the flood. There are two historic events. And then he says, and by that same work, continuing verse 7, by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. There's a little play there. I don't know if you noticed that. Formed out of water, deluged with water, Stored up for fire. <laughs> you know, key, 
key aspects of the of the physical world that God creates. But what Peter is saying is creation, there's the flood, and there's the certainty of judgment. We'll talk about that in, in a little bit. And so he's saying, you know, that's a pretty shallow view to have that what God has promised is not going to come about. To mock and scoff that because don't forget he created everything. Don't forget he sent the flood. And don't forget he promises to judge. Hold everyone accountable. And then the second thing he does is reminds us of God's view of time. Now, I know you know this, but God created time. If you go back to the Genesis account, he creates the celestial uh, parts of, of his creation, the stars and the moon and the sun, and he says that is for the purpose of the seasons and ordering of your life around time. Why do we observe 24 hours in a day? Somebody just make that up, just pull it out of thin air? You do know the answer to that. Why 24 hours in a day? Why do we observe that? The sun comes up and the sun sets. Well, it's, it's, it's the movement of, it's the spinning of the uh, earth on its axis. And why 365 and a quarter days to a year? That's how long it takes the earth to revolve around the sun. They're not made up. Somebody hundreds of years, they pull out a thing. Well, I think we'll have a 365-day year. They didn't do that. It's based on what God created. Now, they will not acknowledge that necessarily. So I'm, I'm just saying all that because he says, don't ever look this fact, verse 8, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years... Is one way uh, is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now, when He says a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day, what is that? What's He saying there? I mean, don't don't equate that. Don't make much out of the numbers. What's His point? Go ahead, Ron. His 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 point is that. God, God's time is whatever God wants it to be. Well, I, I think what it is is, you know, time to us is linear. And so Good. what I just said just happened. And then what I'm about to say is about to happen, but God folds it together. It all happens at the same time. When it, when it comes to time, what word do we use to describe God? In relation to timeless, it's another word. Eternal. Eternal. One of the attributes of God is he's eternal. Now, the, 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 by definition, eternal means you're not bound by time. The Bible presents God as above space and time. Why? Because he created both. He's above. He transcends space and time. So don't try to confine God to time. God is infinite. You and I are finite. God is eternal. You and I are temporal. And that's the great challenge. How does an infinite, eternal being communicate with finite, temporal, created people? That's not easy. But he has done it through his word, through conscience, through creation, and through Jesus, the four sources of his revelation. I'm saying all that because what Peter is saying is, if you guys are mocking the idea that Jesus hasn't come back yet, this time it was about 30 years, for you and me it's 2,000, I understand, I can see what maybe why you're a little bit skeptical, but don't put God in a box of time. And then it leads him to an explanation of why he delays from our perspective. And that, uh, in, that is... For me, this aspect of God's eternality and, and his being infinite is the most difficult thing for me to get my arms around, intellectual arms around. I mean, my, my training, my four degrees are in history and historical theology, and so, and Dave used a great word, I've learned to think linearly, 
I think cause and effect. I want to know why this happened and what the results of this. That's just the way I think. God doesn't think that way. That's not what God... God isn't interested in, you know, he sees the entire, he sees the entire span of history at one glance. Right. And that's hard. I, what? But that's God. Exactly. I can't. So what? There's what? Four or five dimensions we can understand? And there's what? It's more than that. So how, how, did you, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we try to understand what God is trying to teach us is if we're very limited in our abilities to understand different dimensions. I, I, I do struggle with that a little bit. Well, by nature, God's knowledge and understanding is exhaustive and omniscient. For you and me, it's not. We've got to accept that, Dave. And so the reality of those, the contrast of those two is you and I go on learning. He doesn't learn anything. He knows everything. And I mean, that, that, that is a source, among other things, it's a source of our humility. Stephen Hawking just died last week. I think we mentioned him. And what he was trying to understand, he was trying to understand as a physicist, this universe, and his his yeah, I don't know if you ever his his goal was to find a theory of everything. He wanted to find and postulate one theory that explained everything. He spent his whole life didn't quite get it. Now, some of what he is there was uh, his obituary in New York Times uh, uh, Friday or Thursday, whenever I went. It's like two and a half pages long. I've never my mind was so stretched reading that, trying to disguise. Explaining the things, and I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, Lord! I know I'm not very smart, but I this is like." But you know, I'm thankful for people that ask those kind of questions. I'm never particularly happy with his answers, particularly. But you and I learn, Dave, because we are finite and temporal. God doesn't learn anything, and however dimensions, many dimensions there are, and however we try to put it together. The source of your humility and my humility is, Lord, I'm really thankful you have put all this together. Didn't Stephen Hawking say they try to, you know, try to summarize everything you know that make just a few things? Didn't he say everything is connected? I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I think it was him that said that. Well, actually, several have said that. So but yeah, so. yeah. He's trying, it's just, he thought about things that I didn't even think were important to think about. So, anyway. Well, God, God is finite. God created man in his image. God you don't want to say God is finite. God, no. You're God infinite. infinite. Yeah, yeah. God's infinite. He created us in his image, but we're finite. And the, who knows how many, how many spheres are out there. Only God knows that. Mm. But... He gave us his word mm-hmm. to teach us because we are the children of God. And as children, we can only learn so much, and so we have to depend solely on his word. And then when we go to be with God, we will understand more. Mm, yeah. I won't say we'll understand everything. We'll I think we're going to go, in, 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 when Christ comes back and, and all of that follows, I think we're going to go on learning. I really do. Don't I, I go on learning? Yeah. I don't think we're not going to become omniscient. Now, our knowledge is, I know the Bible doesn't say that, but it does seem to me like we're going to go on learning. So that's exciting to me because without sin, the what theology calls the noetic effect of sin is going to be gone. I'll no longer I'll no longer be confined in my thinking by selfish, self-centered motives or attitudes. That's that's an exciting thing for me to contemplate. And so the kinds of questions we're asking now will probably be able to answer with greater depth of understanding. It's exciting to think about that. It really is. And so, I mean, I have my own vision of what it's going to look like, but, you know, nobody really knows. Well, you, you graduate from 
this school and you go up to the next school mm -hmm. and, and you continue in. And, and that school is in the realm of God. Exactly. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 8, which is quoted in a couple of places in the, in the New Testament. And it, 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 it is David's writing, Lord, why are you concerned about us? Why are you interested in us? You know, and he describes who God is and describes who humans are, and he says, why? Why are you interested in us? And of course, the answer goes back to creation, and, and the answer goes back to the worth and value God assigns to us. As Fred said a moment ago, we're creating his image. And he loves us, that's why he's interested. And for my wife, who uh, earlier in her life really struggled with self-worth and self-image issues, the most important thing for her that got her over that was to see herself the way God sees her. That she's a worth and value to him. Psalm, uh, John 10, she knows, he knows her name. You know, um, uh, uh, Max Lucado, I don't know if you know, he, is, yeah. uh, like, he has a great way to put, uh, put things with his words. He says, you are the magnet God puts on his refrigerator. Now, I would never put it that way, but just think of it, because people do that. You put a magnet on the refrigerator, and you look at it, so that every day he just looks at you, knows you, is concerned about you. That, that's, that, is, that, is a, that is a confounding thing to think about, that the creator and sustainer of this universe, the stuff Stephen Hawking was trying to figure out, loves me. I'm the magnet he puts on his refrigerator. Yeah, he's a poor man. He could not buy that. No, he could not. He could not. He could, he not, could not accept that. God no, that no. In the last book he wrote, he said, "What I've discovered is that God, God just isn't necessary." Quote unquote. He just isn't necessary. What do you, and we got him. You know, since we really don't know what heaven's about. Uh, my worries today might be trivial when I'm there. I'm yeah. people that ask Jesus to mm. help me get the rest of my family up there. <laughs> <laughs> now that's true. Well, yeah, that's true. Let's do one more thing before we, well, we have a little bit of time, but I really want to try to get through this and then start the day of the Lord material, which will continue next week. Look at how he, look at how he does this. The Lord is, in, in verse 9 now, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. What promise? The promise to come back. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that's why I wrote it this way. The seeming delay of Christ's return should be looked at as an aspect of God's grace. He's giving more time for more humans to come to faith. This is the way I like to put it. The father delays sending his son to get his church so that he's increasing the population of heaven. That's what he's doing. So don't mock it. As long as you're drawing breath, you can still be a part of the population of heaven. And and so I just I just I think that is fantastic to put those two together. It's so it's pithy, it's short, but it zeroes in on the issue. Don't confine God to your view of time. And that he is delaying, you should understand this is grace. He's increasing the population of heaven. And every day he delays, more will come to faith. That's the right way to look at it. I get impatient. I just think, you know, Lord, it's, now look, it's time for you to bring this to an end. It really is. Things are in a mess. You know, it's just time for you to bring this to an end. He's never answered the question directly, but Peter does. The delay we should understand is an aspect of his grace. More people are coming to know Christ because of the delay. But as Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, there's coming a day when God is going to say, that's it. No man, not. Jesus said, don't try to figure out when that is. Don't, but that, I'm telling you, that's going to happen.
there's going to date, and that's it. And the Lord's going to draw the line and say that's it. So Peter's trying to give us the right perspective about time and the right perspective doctrinally about the seeming delay. And then he embarks on what will start. In a minute. I saw another hand, I think. Uh, yeah. No. There's something else packed into that verse, too. There's support for the exclusiveness of God. Like you would find, I think it's John 14, 6, or even John 3, 16, mm-hmm. if you read the whole verse, mm-hmm. that how does he populate heaven? He brings people to repentance. Mm-hmm. You snuck that in, there's a little, little criteria. There, there's catch. There's a criterion. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, in, in repentance, the Greek word is metanoia. It, it means to change your mind about something. And um, for the moralistic, therapeutic deist, it's to change your mind about God revealed in Christ. And he's not some distant landlord. He's very involved in everything that's occurring to accomplish his purpose. And the greatest of evidence of that is Jesus. Um. Right, now, the day of the Lord. Three things. The fact is God does interview a whole bunch of examples. God's view of time and his delay must be understood as gracious. However, the first word of verse 10 is an adversative, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, that's a simile, like a thief, meaning suddenly. And, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, this verse um, <laughs> is loaded with a great deal of material. So, I thought I would take a little bit of time and I'm not going to go through all of this. Uh, believe me, you probably thought, oh my glory, Ekman's going to be on this. We'll be on this for seven months. All I want to do is demonstrate to you that that phrase, the day of the Lord, is not just a little innocuous phrase. It's a very important phrase. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It is a phrase that refers to the end times. And it's a phrase that encompasses a great deal of all of the events associated with the end time. Now, those two sentences, do do you understand what I'm talking about? I mean, without getting right now into any of the specific chronology or timeline or details, it's just everything that is involved with the end times, is encapsulated in the day of the Lord concept. The day of the Lord is a concept. I mean, it's a phrase, but it's a, it's a biblical concept. And I gave you, if you've taken time to, to read it, I gave you loads of references from the Old Testament prophets. There's a little graph, a bar graph I show you. That the minor prophets is where you see it the most. It's in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings and here in Peter. And so the one thing we know is that the writers of the Bible understood what it meant because they keep using it. And so if we try to summarize it and distill it down into a concept that we can get our intellectual arms around, it's got two parts to it. The day of the Lord is God smashing into history, intervening in history. It was used by the prophet Zephaniah, where you had your devotions this morning. That's to be a joke. Nobody got it, so nobody laughed. But it's a minor little prophet in the Old Testament. But he uses, in the beginning of his little prophecy, he uses the Lord referring to Nebuchadnezzar judging Judah and taking Jerusalem and taking them into captivity. That's the day of the Lord. He intervened in history. He smashed right into history and brought the kingdom of Judah to an end and sent him into exile for 70 years. But then he promises, in the same context, I'll bring you back and I'll bless you again in your land. 
So we come away, and Amos, it's in Amos and a bunch of other places, but it's this idea that God breaks into history for the purposes of judgment and discipline. And once that is completed, he brings blessing. So you saw in that one little PowerPoint slide that's somewhere. Maybe I didn't have it in this one. Yes, I did. Here it is. This, this little... This little, it's just just a copy of one of my slides on page two. You just see it. You have, these are some of the metaphors that are used. Evening, darkness, morning light, judgment, tribulation, followed by blessing and kingdom. It applied to ancient Israel. It applies to the future and time. The day of the Lord is God breaking into history to bring judgment and discipline, followed by blessing. So before he can bless, he first must judge. And so that's how that little phrase is used in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. And to me, if um, if you can kind of keep those two ideas, it's God's breaking into history, which is why Peter uses it here, because that's the theme of this. You don't believe God's ever going to come back and fulfill his promises? Well, and the fourth reason is the day of the Lord concept, which is the epitome of God breaking into history. Because he will bring judgment and then he will bring blessing. And so the language Peter uses is the language Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse. Our fullest account of that is Matthew 24. Where does that will come like a thief in the night? Jesus said that. That's what Jesus said. They ask him, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they say, oh, Jesus, look at the temple. The temple here. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it sparkles in the sun. Jesus says, guys, I'm telling you, not one stone is going to be left on top of one another. That building's doomed. It's going to be destroyed. Which is not what they wanted to hear. You know what I mean? And so they immediately understand he's talking about stuff in the future. Okay, Jesus, what will be the signs of the end of the age? What will be the signs of your coming? And the rest of chapter 24 into chapter 25, Jesus answers those two questions. And he uses the same language Peter's using here. So why do you think Peter's using this language? Because that's what Jesus taught him. (laughs) So he's just paraphrasing what Jesus said. And he's just, he says, okay, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. You know, all, I think all of you have houses, you know, well, even if you just have an apartment. You know, you're not, you're not sitting up now, gee, I wonder if a thief will come tonight. I want to be prepared for him. You know, that's silly. You don't do that. A thief in the night is sudden, unexpected. Jesus says, and way he, like the people when the flood came. They were mocking and making fun of Noah and they're marrying and giving marriage and partying and then the flood came. Jesus said that's exactly what it'll be like when the day of the Lord comes. People are going to say it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Suddenly. It's almost like he's saying when you least expect it, it's when it'll come. And then he, then this, this is really day of the Lord language. This is out of Zephaniah and Amos and Hosea and Jeremiah and the heavens will pass away with a roar. Revelation 20.11 Revelation 6.14 The heavenly bodies, literally the heavenly elements, it's a more correct way to translate that, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth And the works that are done in it will be exposed. Which is what the day of the Lord will do. Everything that's evil, everything that's part of the the rebellion against God, the cosmic rebellion led by Satan, the earthly rebellion in which humans are a part, will be exposed. The light of Jesus Christ will expose everything for what it is. Would that be the end of Revelation? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in Revelation 20 and chapter 20, 19, chapter 20. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> what Peter is doing here in one verse is telescoping in, in just a few phrases, of everything that's from Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19. <laughs> that's, I mean, just zeroing in and summarizing in a couple of phrases. This is what God said is going to happen. He's laid out the basic framework for when it's going to happen, but it's going to come suddenly, like a thief in it. Six through nineteen. Nineteen is the return of Christ, the second half. So, I mean, he's just summarizing in in unbelievably short phrases. But he's that's always that's what today the Lord is, and so what I I I wanted to do. is just take a little bit more, but we're almost out of time, take a little more time and just zero in a little more about the day of the Lord, which is why I gave you that that paper that, that I'd written. So uh, first of all, uh, are the, do, do, do you understand, I, I really, more importantly, I really want you to understand this, because this is extremely relevant for you and me today. It really is. People mocking and scoffing at the idea that Jesus is coming back. You know what I mean? People, you say, I've had that. Do you still believe that? I remember not too long ago. Do you still believe that? Well, yeah. It's a pretty vital center of my my belief. Well, I, I don't really know too many people that really believe that. And yet, you know, at the same time, that's the one thing that people kind of flock to that idea. Do you mean you have details about what really, maybe Area 51? And and maybe you have maybe yeah you know, that kind of stuff gets people really excited and interested because you're talking about something beyond their normal pattern of life, the paranormal. Why are angels such an important topic? People don't even give a hoot about Christianity. Love to talk about why because it's something beyond the physical. It's something beyond my world. It, it gives them a there is something. Well, I can tell you it's all wrapped around Jesus. Well, that's not what I mean. I had a guy say, well, that's not what I mean. What's all wrapped around Jesus? Well, that's not what I mean. So it's the occult. It's all the things, but it's got to satisfy me and my ego. I'm not really interested in it. You see, the moment you start talking about Jesus, you must confront the cross can't talk about Jesus without at some point getting to the cross which really makes people uncomfortable so what I would like to do next week is sketch out uh, we're not going to go through this entire paper if if you have time and you know you're, you have a problem with insomnia just pick this out and start reading it and you'll go to sleep at night but if you have time I'm going to sketch out just a couple of things next week I don't think it'll take the whole hour unless you ask a lot of questions. But then, then we'll just start to move into the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the book. We're getting near the end of Second Peter. I hope you noticed that. So I'm going to have to come up with an idea of the next book we're going to study. I haven't decided yet. What's that? I sent you one idea. Yeah, what? I forget what. What was it? Titus. Oh, that's right, you did. That is a great little book. And that's a little book. That might be a good one for us to study. You get through that in about three months. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how long we've been on First and Second Peter? They're short New Testament books. And we're, we've been on those for months and months. Yeah, Jude we did last. Didn't we do Jude last year? Jude before these two. Yeah, I thought we had done Jude. Okay. Well, I'm going to pray. And then next week we'll... Um, uh, let's do a little bit with the day of the Lord, and we'll get close to finishing the book. Lord, we're grateful for the beautiful day you've created uh, after many days of rain and cool, damp weather. Um, it's a delight to see the sun, so thank you, Lord, for creating it. Thank you for sharing it with us. Uh, we, we see in your world the love of beauty and diversity and variety all around us, and springtime is one of those times of the year when we really see it. As stuff starts pushing out of the ground, the grass is going to start getting greener and trees will start budding in the weeks ahead. That's just a delightful time of the year. 
And Lord, it just in a way it reflects um, that what you do in our lives um, as you bring our lives to the new life in Christ and we begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We begin to evidence your perspective on things and we become, um, in the way we live our lives, those who are the salt and light in this very dark world in which we live. Thank you for these men and their willingness to take time out of their very busy schedules and lives to study the Word of God in depth and detail and to work and seek to apply it in a meaningful way that transforms us from the inside out. We remember Jim and his wife. Fred said that they've had a very serious bout of the flu, so we pray for them. Be merciful and gracious, Lord. Restore them to full health. And we certainly commit them to you this, this afternoon. So we are now going our separate ways. Dismiss us with your blessing. Take care of us, and as we always try to remember, Lord, we we ask you to help us represent you well in our thoughts, in our actions, in our deeds, and in in what we say. To the glory of Christ we pray this. Amen. See you next week. Amen.